And I'm back after a staycation. We've camped in the garden, which was interesting. We've been to the beach a few days, and, uh, and we've, I've done some DIY, as is my want. So uh, it's, been, it's been a nice time off, but we're back anyway today. And uh, we're actually in Mark chapter 8 today, and we're now going to be actually halfway through our series on Mark. So Mark 8 is the halfway point. And, uh, and actually, the book of Mark, you can divide up the book of Mark in lots of different ways, but there's, there's a way that you can book, divide the book of Mark up into just two halves. And the first half between chapters 1 and 8 is, is, Jesus, uh, is, is the question of who Jesus is. And actually, this is the point about Jesus' identity. And in the first half, actually, what we see is Jesus performing miracles around Galilee. In the second half, we see Jesus going to Jerusalem to actually suffer and die and rise again. So we see these two halves of the book. In the first half, we see Jesus' power being displayed, and in the second half, we see Jesus' weakness being displayed. There's, there's a lot of films that this reminds me of, and actually, obviously, I've had time off over the last couple of weeks. I've been watching uh, Star Wars again, because I quite like Star Wars. And, um, so I've been watching Star Wars again, and you know, actually, this kind of reminds me a little bit. There's a big reveal in Star Wars. If you remember the original trilogy, halfway through, there's this huge reveal. Oh, my goodness, Darth Vader, I'm ruining it for you if you've not seen it. Darth Vader is Luke's dad. <gasps> Shock horror, you all say. Actually, sometimes in films, there's a moment in films where there's like this big reveal. Think about like Kaiser Soze in The Usual Suspects or uh, Bruce Willis's character in The Sixth Sense. Sometimes in films, there's a, a character reveal happening, going on. And, and this is what we find here in, in Mark. It's exactly the same here. There's been a tension building up to this point in the narrative about who Jesus is. So I preached last time I preached on Mark 4 and we looked at the disciples in the boat and the disciples say, who is this? that the wind and the waves obey him. They're, they're unsure of who they're in the boat with. And if you read Mark chapter 6, you see um, Herod talking about, uh, trying to work out who Jesus is. Is he, is he John the Baptist? Is he, is, he, is he Elijah? There's this question going around about who Jesus is. And so maybe today you've come and you're actually, look, maybe you're watching this after our Sunday uh, talk, uh, meeting and you're just seeing the title of the talk, Who is Jesus? Or maybe you're here today and you're just really thinking about who is Jesus? Who is he? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Maybe you think you know who Jesus is already. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time, but actually you don't know who Jesus really is because maybe you've created your own Jesus. It's a really easy thing to do to create our own Jesus. Lots of people do that. It's, it's easy to, to say, well, actually, I'm going to believe this about Jesus and that about Jesus, but I'm going to ignore all the stuff he says about X, Y, and Z because it's just too uncomfortable for me. And if, if, I, if I'm going to accept everything about Jesus, I need to accept everything about Jesus, including the things that challenge me and challenge my lifestyle. You see, it's easy to create a Jesus that fits our lifestyle and our background. We take the stuff we like about him and we ignore the stuff we don't. There's also something else that some of us can do. You see, the longer, you, the longer you've been a Christian for, the more likely you are to end up like a Pharisee. You can end up becoming judgmental and pious about other people. You can end up in a, in, a, in a situation that goes, well, Jesus, Jesus wouldn't approve of that. Or Jesus wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't go and speak to those people. Or Jesus wouldn't hang out with them. And actually, when you read the Gospels, Jesus hangs around with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, declaring the kingdom of God to them, calling them out of darkness. See, the danger is actually we can create a Jesus that isn't Jesus. And we need to keep actually coming back to the Gospel, keep coming back to the accounts of Jesus to make sure that the Jesus that we are worshipping is Jesus. And it's not somebody else. So we're going to uh, look at this today, and we're going to break it down into three sections, because I've got quite a long reading for you. So my three sections are going to be my three points today. So let's look at verses 27 to 30 of Mark chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, 
On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? It's a loaded question, that is. Verse 28, then they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. What about you, he said to them? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So firstly, we've got this exchange between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus asked them a question, who do people say that I am? And Jesus would have heard the conversations going on. I mean, he's not deaf. He understands what's going on around him. He's aware of the conversations that are taking place. And he would have heard what people were talking about. But yet he asked the disciples this question. Why? Because he wants them to think about it. They have been thinking about it already, but he wants to bring it up again as a conversational topic. And and actually, their response is, is, is almost word for word what we see in, in Mark 6, I alluded to earlier with Herod, where Herod talks about who Jesus might be. Is he, is Jesus just another Old Testament prophet? Is he just an Old Testament prophet, like Elijah or Elisha? So in the Old Testament, the prophets acted on behalf of God. They brought a message to the people on behalf of God, and often what accompanied their message was signs and wonders. So for example, Elijah and Elisha both brought people back to life again. It wasn't, it wasn't unique to Jesus. So there was a, a, a common understanding that maybe Jesus is, is almost like Elijah come back from the dead. Maybe Jesus is an Old Testament-style prophet. But yet Peter has a revelation. He's starting to realise that Jesus isn't just a messenger. He's starting to realise Jesus is more than that. He's come to realise that Jesus is the Messiah. He's not a messenger, he's the Messiah. The promised king who would come to change the fate of Israel. Peter's got this kind of just revelation. And in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark and Luke, the the three accounts that are very similar to one another. That's why they're called the Synoptics. This story comes up in all three accounts. And in, in Luke and Mark, which are very similar to one another, the story is almost word for word. Peter just says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. But in Matthew, we actually see Matthew 16. Actually, Peter says something more. He says, you're Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter's come to this revelation that Jesus is not just a prophet bringing a message from God. Instead, Jesus is God bringing the message. Peter starts to see something different. He's looking at what's going on with Jesus and he's saying, no, you're not just a prophet. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. That's the first thing. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Let's read verses 31 to 33, shall we? He then began to teach them, this is Jesus, that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, he must rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I mean, poor old Peter. I mean, have you ever been called Satan by anybody before? It's a pretty harsh thing to say, isn't it? Peter here reminds me of that kid in class. Now, I was a teacher for a long time, and he reminds me that there was always one student who, who got one answer right. They'd put their hand up to answer a question, and they'd get it right. And then for the next five minutes, they'd put their hand up for every question you asked, and, and often they would get the next question wrong again, much to like the derision of the people around them. They, all the kids would laugh at them for getting the question wrong. Peter kind of remind, reminds me of that kid here. He's got it right the first time. Now he's going to rebuke Jesus. Jesus, don't be so silly. What are you talking about? You're not going to suffer and die. I love Peter. Peter is like my favourite character 
in the Bible because he's just so normal. He gets things wrong all the time. And if he gets things wrong all the time, yet ends up being who he is, that gives me hope for my own life. He's always getting things wrong or half right, but eventually Peter comes good. And Jesus' rebuke of Peter is really harsh. I mean, he calls him Satan. He says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What's he getting at? What's he talking about here? Peter thinks that the Messiah is going to take the throne of Israel. I've spoken about this before. There was this understanding in first first century Judaism that the Messiah was going to come and take up an earthly rule and reign. That's why Jews, even today, don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. They're waiting for a Messiah who will come and change the fate of the nation of Israel. But Jesus has said, die and rise again. Peter doesn't understand, even though he started to see who Jesus is, he doesn't understand what Jesus' mission is. He thinks it's about earthly rule and and, and earthly rule and reign, and not about a new kingdom coming. It's not about salvation from death for you or I. He's thinking about the here and now, and not about the brokenness that Jesus has come to fix. He can't see beyond his own circumstances to God's bigger picture and plan. You know, we can all fall into that trap of assuming we know what God is up to. I've seen it so many times over the last few months. The amount of times I've seen different, even Christian leaders, people senior in church. This is what God is doing in coronavirus. Coronavirus has happened because of this, or because of that, or because of that. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that says, who has known the mind of God? You know, actually, we mustn't assume that we always know what God is up to. Because actually, God is God, and he is in heaven. Who are we to say? here he makes an assumption and gets it wrong the savior has come to suffer and die and rise again and not take up an earthly throne and there's a a form of irony here i've spoken about uh, first peter the book of first peter before because look actually what happens is is that peter gets it wrong here but you read first peter what's it about it's about a suffering servant who comes and dies and rises again that you and i might be forgiven from our sin and our shame that we might know god Peter's whole, whole first letter is about that theme, and it's in because Jesus has suffered, you can know him with you in your suffering. So Peter doesn't understand it here. He doesn't understand that the Messiah is coming to suffer and die and rise again, but yet actually it is the core theme of the teaching in his first letter. Some of, of you have, have suffered massively since the start of coronavirus, maybe with your health, with jobs, with family pressures, with relationships. I just say, perhaps, this is a complete aside, but perhaps this week, maybe reading First Peter would be a good thing for you to do. Because Jesus has suffered, you can know Jesus with you in your suffering. Because he's suffered, we can know him with us. But Pete, Peter doesn't get that here in our verses in Mark. He doesn't see that yet. The penny finally drops with him later on when he looks back and he sees what God has been doing. You see, we can look back and go, this is what God's done. But often, actually, when we walk through life, it's difficult to actually say, what is God doing in this situation? Do you do do that? Do you reflect? Do you have moments to stop and to pause and to reflect on what God has done? It's easy to say, where is God in this? You know, in those moments where we maybe are lacking faith, it's easy to say, where is God in this? But you know what? Build your faith. Look back and see where God has been with you. Often we don't look back and say, oh, that's, that's what God's been doing. Um, I, I lived with a, a clear call on my life for, for a long time for, for full-time ministry. I, I went to art college, did graphic design, 
I, I decided that I was going to become a teacher, and it was a stopgap job. And, and teaching part-time, and it kind of all didn't work out. It, it, for one reason or another, it just wasn't, I wasn't the right fit there um, in terms of the church. And so Claire and I made, made the, the really difficult decision. So I left the job working for the church, and I had to go back into teaching full-time, went and moved churches to another church just because it just wasn't the right fit for us. And so we, we had this huge, big moment in our lives, and, and that led to another almost 15 years of teaching for me, living with this call of God on my life and not knowing whether it was going to ever be fulfilled or not. And we moved down here. It wasn't because there was any guarantee of anything happening here. We moved down here because we felt God calling us to move here. And, 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 and you have this question mark over your life. God, where are you in this? Where are you in this? I feel like you've promised me something, but, but where is it? And you live with it. And you walk with it. And it's difficult. And it's painful. And now I look back and, and I'm here and I'm standing here now and I work for the church. And, and actually you go, well, it's okay. It's all, it's all worked out. I walked through 50 years of not seeing God move now. And what was God doing in that? God was, God was making me less arrogant. God was rounding off the corners of me. God was taking from being an arrogant 20-something to somebody who might, might actually understand and be empathetic to other people. God was teaching me all sorts of lessons about myself and my character. I look back on it and I go, God, you were at work in my life in this way, but at the time I didn't see it. You see, it's really easy sometimes in life to, to just walk through life and go, God, where are you in this? But actually, we need to look back and say, God, that's where you were at work. You see, Peter eventually, after this point, looked back and had hindsight. But here we just can't see the bigger picture. Jesus wasn't coming to take up rule and reign on an earthly throne, but coming to mend what had been broken in each of us. Mend a broken relationship between us and God. The Messiah doesn't come to be king of Israel, but he comes to be king of you and I. So this is the reason why Jesus came. He came to be king of you and I. But what's, what's the response that Jesus requests from us? Well, this is the, perhaps the surprising bit. Verses 34 to 38. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels." Gosh, that's harsh words, isn't it? Jesus is calling us to something. Hey, this is who I am. This is what I've come to do. Now, this is your response. What does Jesus say here? Look, first of all, because I, I could preach a message here that could sound very legalistic, but it's not. Let's read the text. Jesus says it here plainly. You can't save your own life, says Jesus. You can't do it. You can't earn salvation before God by, by living right. Can't do it. We, don't, we have done nothing to deserve God's grace on our lives, his kindness and mercy, what he gives us, Jesus' death and resurrection as a free gift. It's, it's a sacrifice he gives us. It's free, totally unmerited. And that sacrifice, that unmerited sacrifice, what Jesus is saying here is it should lead to something in us, an abandonment, a radical call to abandonment before him. If you understand what Jesus has done for you, you should be able to leave everything and follow him. And Jesus says that those who follow him need to be ready to give up everything for him. It's radical. This, this image of picking up a cross and following him, to the disciples listening to that message, it wouldn't have been as, as clear and un, as understandable as when Jesus had actually picked up his own cross. They'd have seen the Roman authorities crucify people and kind of understood the metaphor, but it's only when actually they see Jesus being crucified, carrying his own cross, it's only when they see that happening that this would start to make some sense to them. Jesus, you're calling us to a, 
a lifestyle of sacrifice, of abandonment. The gospel is Jesus' total abandonment for us. He gives up everything, dying at the hands of people who showed him no honour at all, that you and I might gain everything. Jesus gives up everything, that you and I might gain everything. Jesus gives up, is, is dishonoured, so that you and I might be honoured as God's sons and daughters. You need to understand that. God gives everything for you, that you might gain everything. This abandonment to, 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 to everything, so that we might be accepted by him. And Jesus demonstrates radical obedience to the Father's will. That should lead to radical obedience in us. You see, every, everybody can come to Jesus, all of us. You're all accepted. You can all come. We're all invited to follow him. But in the following, don't expect that your life is going to stay the same. Don't expect that Jesus isn't going to challenge you to change. Because God calls us on to obedience before him. He calls us to radical obedience. There's that phrase, we all have a cross to bear, and it's used flippantly a lot of the time. We all have a cross to bear. It gets used flippantly. But actually, that phrase is actually really important. We do all have a cross to bear. We all have something we need to pick up or, or let go of in order to follow Jesus. You see, each one of us are either going to be called to pick up certain things that we weren't doing before or lay certain things down. For some of those, for some, those things will be huge. It might be a habit, a lifestyle. Maybe it's even a relationship or maybe it's even the chance of a relationship that you need to lay down in order to follow Jesus. But he calls us to follow him. God says to the Israelites, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus is calling us to exactly the same way of life. And I know that's quite countercultural. And I realise that this video is going to go on YouTube. Because look, our culture says this, love yourself. You love yourself. You'll see this all over YouTube. Love yourself. Jesus says, follow me and die to self. Our culture says, be the best you that you can be. Jesus says, be like me. Our culture says, it's all about you. Jesus says, it's all about me. If you want to follow Jesus, don't expect to be the same. Don't expect to stay the same. Um, yesterday, we went to Great Stone Beach. And um, those that you've been there before, it's, it's, uh, it's just by St. Mary's Bay. And there's this, there's this big, huge mud flat that goes out to the sea. And actually, it was the first time we've been there and the tide's been fully out. It's about three quarters of a mile out to the actual sea. And so Edie's there, and she loves the sea, and she starts playing in the mud. And I say to Edie, come on, let's, let's go out to the sea. Um, and, she, and she doesn't want to go because it's so muddy, and she's freaking out for about the first 20, 30 yards. She's screaming, oh, I want to go back. It's disgusting mud. Oh, I might stand on a crab. Um, and so I pick her up, and I carry her for a bit, and then I put her down, and she's start, starting to gain a little bit of confidence. And there's this moment she goes to me, Dad... I've realised I can, I can stand in your footprints. I can follow in your footsteps. And I know that if I follow in your foot, footsteps, Dad, I know I'm going to be safe. She said that to me. So we carried on walking out, and we got all the way to the end. And then Edie sees the sea. She sees the sea. And she comes from behind me and runs full pelt towards the sea. She goes, come on, Dad, let's run to the sea. And it's like all this fear and abandonment in her had gone. And... Um, I just think there's a picture in that about what Jesus is calling us to in life. You see, Jesus is calling us to follow after him. But he's calling us to follow after him in a way that he's already been himself. He doesn't, he doesn't call us to something that he's not done. He's calling us to radical obedience to God 
Jesus has been radically obedient to God. He's saying, come on, just walk in my footsteps. Come on, just take up your cross, follow me. Follow what I did. Look, I was radically obedient to the will of the Father. And this also reminded me of this quote from C.S. Lewis. I was just thinking about this in worship today. C.S. Lewis said this in, in The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures falling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. It had been easy for Edie yesterday just to sit and play in the mud, but yet actually there was the offer of something much better if she just walked in obedience and followed in obedience. Actually, we got there, and it was amazing. We had the most wonderful time. You see, actually, God's calling us on a journey, and the journey he's calling us on is towards a future glory and inheritance with him. You're going to get to heaven one day, and it's going to be the most amazing thing ever. It's going to be that moment of running, of total abandonment before God and saying, yes, I'm here, I've made it. But in the meantime, we're called to a life of radical obedience, of following in the footsteps of Christ, of laying things down and picking things up, habits, sinful desires, attitudes. We need to lay them down in order to follow after our saviour. I'm going to finish with this. The writer to the Hebrews wrote, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you do not weary and lose heart. So I think there's two things to close on now. If the band can come back up, we're going to sing a song as we finish. There's two things to close on today. First of all, maybe it's for you. I want to follow Jesus for the first time. Or maybe actually you've kind of you've prayed a prayer of repentance, but you've never actually gone, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus now. I'm going to lay these things down and follow him. I invite you to do that in a second. Secondly, maybe for us today, for some of you, you just had a revelation of who Jesus is again today. And actually, you need to be picking up your cross and following Jesus. You need to be laying things down in your life. You're a Christian. You follow Jesus. You say you follow Jesus, but actually your lifestyle might be saying something different. Maybe actually you're engaged in stuff that isn't really following Jesus. You know it's actually not something that Jesus would be doing. I just encourage you today to start just to come back to Jesus. We sing this song together in a minute and just say, God, I just want to follow you with my whole heart. I'm going to lay this down before you at your cross again today that I might just give my life over to total abandonment before you. Let's just pray as I close. Jesus, I thank you that you've called us to radical obedience. You've called us to a radical discipleship of following after you, of walking in your footsteps. And Jesus, I thank you that you've gone before us. The Bible talks about you as our forerunner. Jesus, I thank you that you are our forerunner. You've gone into the gates of heaven before us. And I thank you you call us to follow after you. So Lord, I pray right now, for anybody here today who needs to just say yes to you for the first time, help them to do that now as they maybe ask for prayer on the prayer button on, on, their, on, on our church online. Lord Jesus, I pray for them right now that they would accept your love. But I, I pray for others today where they know they need to lay down a simple habit, maybe a hope, a dream, an aspiration. They just need to lay it at your cross again this morning in order to follow you. Help them to do that now, I pray. Amen.